So if you're new here this morning, welcome. Um, we're glad that you could be with us. We are studying the book of First John. Uh, we go verse by verse through the scriptures, and we are in First John chapter 2 this morning, and we are studying the letter that John has written to a certain audience that was there during um, the first century, and a church that was facing different type of oppositions and different types of false teachers that were influencing the church at that time. But our passage this morning is set in the context of the two appearings of Jesus, and appearing in the past and appearing in the future. And each one is mentioned twice. The past appearing is in chapter 3. Look there in verse 5. First uh, John chapter 3, verse 5, it says, You know that he appeared in order to take away our sins. And again in verse 8, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So John is talking about the first appearing, which is his incarnation, the, his birth. Um, he's becoming one of us. And he explains why that was, why he came. And then he looks forward to the future, and he said he didn't appear just once, He will appear again. And he mentions that appearing twice as well. In chapter 3, verse 2, look there. He says, What will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And then again at the end of chapter 2, verse 28, he says, So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So here is the Apostle John's whole point in writing this letter. There are two appearings of Christ, one in the past and one yet to come in the future. And that puts us right in the middle between the two appearings. And the core question that John wants to answer is this. What does it mean to really know this God? And what does it look like to walk with him? And how do you know that you're walking with him? How do you know that you belong to him? How do you know that you truly have union with Christ? And what should our present experience look like in light of his past coming? And of course, the certainty of his his future coming, our daily walk, our daily life. What should that experience look like? And those are the boundaries. That's the, the framework of what he's talking about this morning. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 28, um, and I'm going to try and cover up till chapter 3, verse 10 this morning. So pray for me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also 
lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of Man, sorry, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning and we pray for your help as we study this passage. We pray that the Spirit of God, Lord, would open our eyes. We pray that he would open our ears. We pray that he would open our hearts to receive these instructions, to receive this admonition, to receive this training in righteousness. And we know your word is profitable, Lord, so please, we pray, help us to be attentive this morning so that we may profit. We pray, Lord, that we would not leave here this morning without knowing we have met with you and that you would grant repentance to those that need to repent. You would grant faith and salvation to those this morning that need to be saved. But also you grant comfort and peace and joy to those this morning that need to be comforted by your Spirit through your Word. And that we would live lives that are joyful, lives that are full of peace, lives that reflect the wonder of our Savior. So we ask for your help this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In an article written in a sports magazine, Olympic gold medalist Lanny Basham tells what practice is necessary in order to succeed at the small bore rifle competition. And he says, our sport is controlled non-movement. And we are shooting from 50 meters over half a football field at a bullseye three quarters the size of a dime. He says, if the angle of error at the point of the barrel is more than 0.005 of a millimeter, that is five one thousandths, you drop into the next circle and you lose a point. He goes on to say, so we have to practice making everything stop. I stop my breathing, I stop my digestion by not eating for 12 hours before the competition. I train by running to keep my pulse around 60 so I have a full second between heartbeats. I have gotten it lower, but found that the stroke volume increased so much that each beat really jolted me. And you do all of this, and you have the technical control you need. But you need experience and practice in reading these conditions, the wind and the mirage. And then you have the other 80% of the problem, the mind. So the title of my message this morning is Practice Makes Perfect. Practice Makes Perfect. 
In our passage today, John mentions the word practice seven times. And if we're going to honor the Lord in our lives, we need to be actively practicing holiness in our lives. It's not going to happen by osmosis. It's not going to happen by not being involved. So this morning, John is challenging us to make sure that we are practicing holiness. So look at chapter 2, verse 29. He says, You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And then in chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. And then in verse 7, he says, Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Then in verse 8, he says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And then in verse 9, he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. And then in verse 10, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So seven times he uses the word practice. And we've seen before, whenever there's repetition, there's an emphasis. Same as our teachers in our classroom when we were in school. They would repeat something. When your mother repeated something, when your father repeated something, it was for the sake of emphasis. But that's not enough. He doesn't just stop there. Three more times, he adds a similar phrase. Keeps on sinning. And to bring this point across, look at um, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And then again in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So this word practice and keeping is, is a, a principle. It's a principle that we need to understand And John is not saying that a Christian will never sin again. We've looked at that over and over again. John has told us a number of times already that a Christian is not marked by perfection, but rather his direction, his direction in his pursuit of holiness. So he wants us to understand that we need to practice in this pursuit. And the Lord tells us here over and over again that we are his children And that's a wonderful phrase, another repetition that is mentioned here. Five times in this passage, he uses the phrase, children of God, or children. And he wants to bring this point home too, that it's not just that God calls you his children, but rather that you're in a relationship with him. But he's actually making us his child. And this is astounding, this is a wonderful truth. This is the new birth that we've spoken about. This is adoption. This is regeneration. As a matter of fact, John uses the phrase born of God um, a few times. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Look at chapter 2, verse 29. You can be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. So the core of what we're going to be talking about this morning is this. God loves us. God loves you. 
And you and I need to be reminded of this wonderful truth. He loves you so much that he actually makes you his child at great cost to himself. And in the process, he's making us radically like himself. He's changing us from the the sinner that we were into the, the child of God that we are. So look at verse 1. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is who we we really are. In verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. So he doesn't just call us children of God. He doesn't just adopt us and say, Well, you you can hang out with me now if you want. He makes us his children And this is an important truth that we need to understand. And two points this morning in our study. And first, our union in Christ, with this union we have in Christ, we are deeply loved by Christ. So my first point this morning is, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. If you're familiar with some of the hymns, you would recognize it as as a song. And this is exactly where that song comes from, right from this verse. And Apostle John has said already in chapter 2, verse 29, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. The thought that we have been born of God causes John to exclaim this wonderful truth. See, behold, look at what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So His point is, 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 a, is powerful. It's simple, but it, it is powerful. The Father's great love has made us His children, and it distinguishes us from the world. It separates us from Everything else that is in the world, we are special, we are unique, we are God's children. So it's not just that God calls us His children. Understand that this morning. It's not just that He adopts us and He gives us the legal rights of being His children. He's actually making us His children. He's changing us. And something radically has changed in the, in the person who we were And now the person who belongs to Christ. We are in union with Christ. We are fundamentally different. We are not the same people if we have been born again. And remember, John is writing to those who are Christians. He's writing to a a church, a congregation that have embraced Jesus. And he reminds them of who they are. He reminds them that they are fundamentally different from the world around him. He tells him, you are truly a child of God. And the Apostle John had been blessed more than most men in the history of the world. He was the only apostle not to die a a violent death. And many prophets and many people had desired to see what John had seen and to hear what, what he had heard. Remember, he had spent three years as one of the closest disciples of Jesus Christ. He had heard Jesus' profound teachings. He had seen Jesus 
perform dozens of miracles. He had seen Jesus transfigured in his glory. He had witnessed Jesus coming alive from the dead. And he stood transfixed as as Jesus ascended bodily into heaven. He had seen some amazing things. He had witnessed amazing things. And here he is as an old man. And we ask, John, as you think back over your life, what, what stands out? What motivates you? What, what gives you hope? And here is his reply in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. Out of everything he could have said, out of everything that he has experienced, this is what he wants us to know. This is what he wants us to learn. This is what he wants us to understand and to meditate on. So the word see there in verse 1, the word see in the ESV is, is translated as behold in the King James Version. It's an exclamation and it's also a command. It's an exclamation and a command. Um, As an exclamation, it shows that the Father's great love should amaze us. It should amaze us. And we know sometimes things grow commonplace over time. And we've heard about them and we know them for years. And maybe at first, when it was new, an idea or an, an experience excited us. But over the years, the effect gets less and less or weaker and weaker until finally it's just a just a distant memory but john is saying this love of the father the father's great love for us is a kind of experience that should grow stronger and stronger over the years it shouldn't get less and less it grows stronger and stronger until it it dominates our lives it dominates every aspect every area of our lives it should consume our thoughts It should consume our behavior as well. It should motivate us to serve God and to live holy lives. It should give us comfort amidst our trials, amidst our suffering. It should fill us with the eager hope of being with Him when we get to heaven. It should fill us with awe and worship. We should be reminded every day that He is the holy sovereign of the universe, the creator of this world, who owns us, who loves us, and that He set His love on us as sinful human beings. We who rejected Him, we who were rebels, we who were running away from Him. And in that rebellion, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Don't let yourself ever hear of the Father's great love and uh, ho-hum. It ought always to amaze us. It should always amaze us. Tim Keller, he uses this illustration. He said it would be like going 
to, to work all month, you show up early, you stay late, six days a week, you're exhausted, you work hard, and at the end of the month, you go to your boss's office to get your paycheck, and he hands you an envelope, you open up the paycheck, and there's a check, and you say, behold, you've paid me, wow, astonishing, you paid me. Of course, we, we wouldn't do that. You would say, well, of course, you paid me. I deserve this money. I expect this money. I worked hard for this money. This is mine. It would be wrong for you not to give me this money. I'm entitled. And then Keller says, sadly, this is how so many of us respond when it comes to being children of God. Of course, it's supposed to be this way. Yes, I'm your child. Yawn, ho-hum. John says, no, that's not how it should be. That's not how it should be. You don't get it. God's love is the most astonishing thing imaginable. God doesn't just call you his child. He is making us his child. He is changing us. It's a miracle. This is the new birth. This is supernatural. This is not boring. God doesn't just call you his child. He is making us his children. You belong. This I need to be reminded of over and over again. We all need to be reminded of this. He loves us and he's embraced us as his own. We are in union with Christ. There's nothing deficient about this. There is nothing to which we can point and say, well, only if you did this better, Lord, then everything would be fine. No. The Lord is the sovereign, the sovereign creator. And we are Christ because he first loved us. This is his work. This is his finished work. We are in union with Christ, and you, are, and you and I are deeply loved by God. But it gets better. It gets better. Look at the second part of verse 2. John says, We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Notice there in verse 2, he says, We know. You underline that. He says, we know. This is a surety. This is not a speculation. He doesn't say all. He doesn't say we, we speculate. And he doesn't say this is the best forecast. The word is, we know. And biblical hope is not a, it's not a good guess about the future. It is a certainty. It is not Well, a 50% chance that that this will happen. This is a a 100% certainty because it's based on the promises of God. It's based on His very nature. And He is the covenant keeper. He cannot break His promises. His very name is Yahweh, covenant keeper. And He keeps His promises. And the testimony of His Son is relayed to us by the apostles in, in the New Testament. Here we have it. This is a surety. A sure hope. My second point. Our union in Christ 
motivates our perseverance. Secondly, look at this in verse 3. That's where he goes. He says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is not a command. In the original language, this is it's not an imperative. He's not saying, you must purify yourself. This is evidence. This is evidence. He is saying, if you understand how deeply loved you are, then you are going to be purifying yourself. You are going to be pursuing holiness. This is evidence that you know Him and that you are experiencing the fact that you belong to Him. If you're not experiencing that, then you're not His child. That's what He goes on to say. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers who was a minister of the Westminster Chapel in London um, from 18... Well, he lived in 1899 up to 1981. He wrote a study of First John, which he called Children of God. And here's a quote from that. He says in the study, I do feel that this is perhaps the greatest weakness of all in the Christian church, that we fail to realize that we are what we are or who we are. And he goes on to say that, most of our unhappiness is due to our failure to relate to our trials, to our glorious position as children of God. He, he adds, if only we realized who we are, then the problem of conduct would almost automatically be solved. He says, the more I read the New Testament, the more I am impressed by the fact that every appeal for conduct and good living and behavior is always made in terms of position. Our position. Do we really understand who we are in Christ? And that's a wonderful quote here. It's very insightful. Most of the problems that we have, even as, as individual Christians, would be done away with if we understood who we were in Christ. But most of the troubles and the problems we have as a church as a, as a whole would be done away if we understood who we were corporately as a body of believers who are in Christ. And godly conduct rests on our understanding of our true great position as children of God. And I remember in India, when I was ministering there, speaking to a, a judge, and he knew that I was a Christian, and he said to me, Gareth, how is it that you Christians come to me to solve your problems? He's a Hindu man. How is it that you Christians come to a Hindu to solve your problems? I don't have an answer for him. I mean, what, a, what an embarrassment that the church of God has such a terrible testimony of the grace of God. And it did in that particular town. But probably Martin Lloyd-Jones is right. We do not understand who we are and what we are. And if we did, these problems that we had would be done away with. These struggles that we have would be done away with. The selfishness that we have would be done away with. The greed that we struggle with would be done away with. And if you begin to see this truth and allow it to shape 
your identity, it works out like this. You are tempted to engage in some sin or to join the world in some degrading form of of entertainment. But you think, I can't do this because I am a child of God. And it would disgrace the name of my Heavenly Father. Or you read in the Bible and it convicts you that some of your behavior is not godly. It may be lustful thoughts or maybe grumbling or complaining. It might be a wrong attitude that you are having towards your spouse, towards your boss. And perhaps you, you frequently bend the truth to, to cover up your misdeeds. But when Scripture confronts you, you think, I'm a child of God. I can't do that as a member of His family. I can't do that because I belong to Christ. What I say is going to disgrace His name. It's going to bring dishonor on His name. What I do, people will point at me and point to my Savior. So your new identity should motivate you to grow in holiness. And John begins with the foundation of our present position. Who we are. Remember verse 3 is not a command. It's evidence. There cannot be fruit unless it is rooted in the soil. And we are rooted in Christ. And the fruit should be Christ-likeness. This is something we practice as a result of our position in Christ. Practice makes perfect. And the fruit is a result of the root. Think about the word practice for a moment and what that really means. As mentioned before, the word practice is, is here recorded seven times in this passage. Here's a couple of dictionary definitions. To practice is to do something again and again in order to become better at it. Or practice is to do something regularly as an ordinary part of your life. It's my practice to get up early and go for a run. Maybe that's your practice. It's my practice to take a a nap in the afternoon, something you do regularly. It's my practice to eat vegetables. Brian, you can relate to that. Or practice is a main preoccupation, isn't it? A vocation. Like, I may be in a, a legal practice, or in a medical practice, or a dental practice, or in private practice, something you do regularly. It's the ordinary course of your life. It's the predominant marker of of who you are. And what John is saying is, if you want to know what your present experience is supposed to look like, if you want to know what it is to be in union with Christ, then first of all, look at how deeply loved you are. And then ask yourself, what is your ordinary course of practice? Are you becoming more and more like the one who gave himself for you? Are you becoming more and more like the one who gave his life for you? A great expense to himself. A great cost to himself. 
And no one who knows God keeps on sinning. Verse 6. Look at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Look at verse 9. It's almost the exact verse. Remember, repetition, emphasis. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Praise God. Praise God. That should encourage you this morning, folks. It shouldn't discourage you. It should encourage you. Because he has promised that he will finish what he has started in you through his son. No one who knows him keeps on sinning. In India, we had wild pigs that used to walk freely around the neighborhood. And they would often find a a puddle of of water, and soon that water would turn into a a mud pool. And I remember watching these pigs one day wallowing in their dirt, only to be startled by a a dog that that chased them away and and ran away. And of course, the the mud pool was, was still left behind. And a few minutes later, a young man came walking out of his house, glued to his phone, And he was not aware of this new mud pool that had been created by the pigs. And without lifting his head from his screen, he fell and slipped into this this mud. But he quickly got up and he ran back into his house so he could wash himself of this dirt and clean himself and and change his clothes. And in a short while, he, he came out of that house again. And again, he was glued to his mobile. But without even... Looking up from his phone, he took a a wide berth around the mud pool and continued on his journey. That's exactly what John is talking about here. He's not talking about that we would be perfect in any way. He's rather talking about the direction that that we are living as a life of a believer. We avoid those, those sins. We do everything we can to make sure that we look to Christ and we head in that direction so that we don't fall into that pool of mud again and again and again and again. We do what we need to do. We practice. We practice. We pra- practice holiness. And if God has imparted new life to you, So that you have become his child. You cannot go living and living in sin. A true child of God avoids those places he knows will lead him into temptation. That will lead him into sin. And when he's led out of the mud into which he's fallen again, he gets back up. And he calls upon the name of the Lord. And he knows that God is faithful and just to forgive him of his sins and to cleanse him from their unrighteousness. And he continues in his path. You know, a pig and a sheep may fall into the same mud hole, but there's a difference. 
pig will love it, and he will wallow in it. That's his nature. But the sheep will want to get out of the mud and avoid it the next time. And we are sheep. We are called sheep. He is the great shepherd. And we are his sheep. We are not the pigs who like to wallow in the mud. And if you like it in the mud and you don't want to get out, you may need to ask yourself the very important question this morning. Have you been born again? True believers abide in Christ. I need to quickly say that though, that there are several commands in this passage. Um, There are two imperatives, for those of you who like your grammar, two commands. We need to see them here because they, they set this all in context. Both of the commands are introduced with words of affection here. Little children. And John looks at us and he says, little children. Look at chapter 2, verse 28. This is the first command. Little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Abide in him. Live out your life in union with Christ. Believe that you are deeply loved. Believe that you are dearly loved by him. And live that out. Live that out. The reality of being loved by him. And John makes it more clear in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 16, in the next chapter. He says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. He says you've got to buy into the fact how deeply you are loved. You have to believe this. You should not doubt God's love for you. It's not just that you have an understanding, an intellectual understanding of God's love, but you need to understand the love of God, and you need to realize this and say, I'm okay, I'm safe in the arms of God. I'm deeply loved, I'm dearly loved, I'm eternally loved. And your confidence needs to come from that. And if that's true, you can face anything. You can face the trials that Satan will will tempt you with. You can face the problems that the world will be knocking at your door, bashing down at your door, because of the confidence you have in the character of God, the confidence you have in the reality that you are loved by God. Abide in that love, abide in that truth. That's the first command that he gives to his little children. And the second command, look at verse 7 of chapter 3. Again, he starts it with little children. He's addressing those who are born of God. But this is a different command. He says, let no one deceive you. Don't be deceived. And From the very beginning, that's been the biggest battle, hasn't it? It goes all the way back to our first parents. Remember when the serpent came to Eve? It was deception. And he wasn't just trying to get her to rebel against God. 
The deception was, was much more subtle, kind of as subtle as it is in your life and in my life. And, and the serpent says, I didn't really say that. Of course, he didn't really mean that. And at the core, what he's trying to say is, can you really trust God? Can you really trust this, this kind of, of God? I mean, you're not really going to die. God knows something that he's, he's trying to keep from you. God's holding out on you. He knows that when you eat this fruit, you're going to become more like him. You're going to know things. You're going to know good from evil. And the deception is planted in their minds. And we know what happened. The deception took hold almost as easily as it takes hold in your life and my life today. And the question is this. What is God really like? Can he really be trusted? Does he have my best interest at heart? Or is he really more selfish? Is he really more interested in his own glory and his own plan? And he's not all that concerned about you or me where we are. Can you really trust God? Is it true that we believe this? Or are we believing the lies of the devil? Is it true that he will never go back on his promises? Does he really love me? And that's the deception that Satan wants you to be thinking about. Those are the, the lies Satan wants you to be entertaining in your mind when you leave here this afternoon. Does he really love me? I'm not sure. Be sure this morning, folks. Here it is written in the Word of God for all of us to see clearly. I read a story of a family who adopted an older child from a, a terrible orphanage where they experienced terrible, unspeakable things. And when they brought this daughter home, one of the things they told her was that she was expected to clean her room every day. And when she heard about that responsibility, she, she fixated on it and sought as a way she could earn her family's love. In other words, she isolated the responsibility and applied it to her existing frame of, of thinking that was shaped by her life in the orphanage. And so every morning when her parents came into her room, it was immaculate, it was clean. And she would sit on the bed and she would say, my room is clean, can I still stay here? Do you still love me? And her words broke her parents' heart. Eventually the girl learned to love her parents' words as they said it. As an unconditional, beloved child who would never be forsaken. Not as a visitor trying to earn her place in the family. And verse 7 tells us, folks, we are not visitors trying to earn God's favor. We are beloved. Look at verse 7. Little children, don't let anyone deceive you. He really does love you and he really is changing us. And the point is this, you're either listening to the voice of God who loves you 
who delights in you and reminds you of how precious you are to him? Or you're listening to the lies of the devil. You're listening to the enemy, the enemy of your soul telling you that you don't belong, that you really can't trust him, that he doesn't love you the way he loves other people. Because really at the end of the day, you're just a visitor. Don't believe those lies. Which voice are you listening to this morning? The voice of the one who loves you immeasurably. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, because that is what we are. Is that the voice you're listening to? Or the voice of those steady and constant lies trying to deceive you and to leave you wondering whether or not you you are really loved. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. He's given it to us. It's a gift, folks, which means it has to be received, isn't it? And so there's the question, have you received this gift? The love of the Father who is making you new, who is making you radically beautiful, like himself, perfect, like the one who gave himself for you. Or are you receiving that and believing the lies? Are you abiding in that reality? That's why he keeps on saying abide. That's why he keeps on telling us to practice. Reject the deception of the one who tells you that you're not loved, that you don't belong, that you're not enough. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. We are enough. He has shed his blood for us. In his eyes, we are beloved. Do you believe that this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this timely reminder, Lord, that we are loved by the King of this universe, and that you've adopted us and brought us into your family and made us your own. We are not just visitors, Lord, to your table. We are not just visitors to your throne. We are your children, and we are loved by the King. We pray, Lord, that reality, Lord, would shape the way we live our lives this week, next week, next month, our whole lives. May it shape our behavior. May our belief affect our behavior. May we practice living lives that please you in every possible way. Lord, we thank you for this great love that loved us, Lord, while we were still rebelling against you, while we were still spitting in your face, Lord, you chose us to be your children. Lord, I pray this morning, if there are people in this room who don't know this love, this unspeakable love, that you would open their eyes to the truths of the gospel this morning, that they would see the sacrificial love 
of God the Father who sent his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. So I pray this morning, Lord, you would save those who need to be saved this morning. You would grant them faith and repentance, and they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But for us, Lord, who have already done that and are living our lives struggling, we pray, Lord, that we would find much hope and much joy in this truth this morning of who we are in Christ and that our lives would make a difference for your glory. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.